2: It's been 10 years since Hurricane Sandy brought mass devastation to Staten Island's east shore, destroying hundreds of homes and businesses while tragically claiming the lives of 24 borough residents. As the anniversary nears, the Staten Island Advanced staffers reflect on the paper's coverage of the historic storm in the immediate aftermath of the event and the ongoing recovery and resiliency efforts that continue to this day.
3: You couldn't fathom what happened, and you know, as journalists, we just, that adrenaline kicks in and you just, you know, start reporting.
0: I get down there, pull over, and there's tons of people walking around. You could see debris everywhere, there's maybe a fire truck, fireman, everything's wet. Every, it's still windy out, there's overcast. It, it just feels like, you know, not to, to, for cliché, it feels like a horror movie, a thriller, some sort of yeah. dystopian disaster flick. I eventually, you know, lost contact with my parents,
4: uh, so I was kind of scrambling, uh, you know, through any kind of means of contact I could think of. I know you mentioned earlier that our colleague Tracy was sort of taking phone calls for people, you know, uh, looking for information, and I was one of those people,
1: and it was uh, it was just like a really desperate, really, you know, trying night. I do remember looking out the the front window of my of my living room and seeing the the trees, which I was seeing bend in ways I'd never seen bend before, and then obviously the aftermath of it. I remember riding my bike around my neighborhood for a little bit, and just seeing the complete devastation, and then I later uh, volunteered at Newtup High School, handing out some um, supplies and stuff, and going around the neighborhood, and those images I think are. Those are ones that will definitely stick with me
2: welcome to the staten island advances from the scene a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on staten island with the reporters who cover them i'm your host eric bascom and this week's podcast will be a little different than usual typically we have one maybe two reporters on to discuss our topic for the week But given the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy and the profound impacts it had on Staten Island, we're going to do a longer episode and speak with four different reporters about what it was like covering the storm and the steps that have been taken since then to mitigate the effects of future inclement weather events. First, we'll be speaking with former reporter-turned-editor Tracy Papora about her experience in the newsroom on the night of the storm and her coverage of recovery efforts in the months that followed thanks for joining me today tracy this is the first time we've had you on the podcast in a while considering your promotion to the editorial team but uh, i appreciate you coming on to uh, reflect back on your days as a reporter absolutely so before we get to the storm itself i was hoping you could tell us a little bit about our coverage at the paper in the days leading up to the storm and kind of how our expectations either did or didn't match how severe it wound up being. What do you kind of remember about the ways we were talking about the storm before it arrived?
3: First off, you have to realize we weren't um, a digital first operation at the time. We were most of our stories appeared in print, and then after would appear in the in um, online. So um, we were thinking that the storm would blow over you know uh, we, we knew that there was going to be bad weather we had the usual contingency plans we would have when we know there's a storm coming and the types of stories that we would write and we had uh, that i believe that night everybody kind of went home at about the day before i think it was a monday and everybody went home and then as soon as we all got home our lights went off we had um, our nighttime crime reporter and a night editor working, um, and I think I believe they worked around the clock. We also had photographers out on the scene and capturing those first moments when the storm surge came in. And we really had, you know, at the time, it wasn't as much people pulling out their iPhones and taking video. So we were looking on social media and Facebook for people posting things like that. But it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. So most people woke up the next morning. We had no power. Luckily, our newsroom at the time never lost any power. So that was great. But there were people who worked here who lost their Uh, had lost possessions or their houses were flooded so some people had a harder time than others to to really get in but we had reporters in all areas of the um, island after that so we had out on the south shore on the East Shore, um, even some on the North Shore, because there was just so much devastation. It was just, you couldn't fathom what happened. And, you know, as journalists, we just, that adrenaline kicks in and you just, you know, start reporting. And it was just mass devastation.
2: I know that you were actually in the newsroom, right, for some of this stuff. And so I'm curious, kind of what that experience was like, what you were tasked with. I'm sure it must have been, you know, very hectic, especially at that time, the newsroom was a little more robust. Everyone was there in person and now we have a smaller staff, we have people working hybrid, remote, whatever it might be. But I imagine the newsroom on that day was was kind of a mess, right?
3: Well, one of the things is the way we covered the news back then, too. We weren't equipped with laptops. We were at desktops. So reporters from the scene were not filing information. They were calling it into the editors, Um, and and everybody was calling things in. I was someone who was in the office doing a lot of the what we call write-throughs and getting um, information from everybody and just adding into the story. The biggest thing were they were missing people in the beginning, and it's not like we knew that there were 24 people dead in the beginning. It was one by one and it was very sad and emotional to hear about another death. Um, And and it was just, you know, keeping almost like a running list for people of the places they could go to get help, whether it was um, food, clothing, um, hot food, you know, help cleaning out their homes because some people still had, they couldn't get the water out of their homes. And then there were people whose homes were gone. So it was just tremendous amount of devastation and just employing all our resources to be out everywhere we possibly can to get news.
2: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned, you know, trying to kind of uh, figure out what's going on in terms of people who are missing, how we can get supplies to these people who may be in need. And so on that note, kind of what were, in those you know, next few days afterwards, what were some of the paper's priorities in terms of coverage? What were the things that we were really trying to get done as quickly as possible? Because there's just so much to the story, right, that obviously you can't be writing everything at once. What was the biggest thing for us?
3: Well, the biggest thing was um, talking about the, the extent of the devastation keeping tabs on people who were, had missing family members i mean we were getting calls from all of the i would say the globe because um two of the children who perished their father was um, an irish citizen so i remember getting calls from irish newspapers um, people were calling us just asking do you know if my family's okay and these are questions we couldn't answer I haven't heard from my my aunt, and, and she lives in Midland Beach, and we couldn't answer these questions. All we could do is just, we worked around the clock. Um, like I said, we never lost electricity, but ha- had we, we, we had backup generators, um, and we were making sure those were working, and we just worked around the clock. That was the year there was no Halloween, um, because it just, and everybody just stayed really late and we all just uh, tried to cover every aspect of it. You know, and we looked at the people's, you know, everyone's individual beats. So, you know, people who normally covered transportation were talking about how there was no transportation, there was no gas. You know, we were trying to help people. We were listing the gas stations where, that uh, reported having gas because people couldn't fill up their tanks. It was, from every little detail you can imagine, we were just trying to get the information out there.
2: Yeah. And so kind of moving on a little bit from the immediate aftermath, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was some of your work highlighting the volunteers and community members who were really aiding in the recovery effort. So I know you did some features on many of those, uh, I believe a full series actually. And so can you talk to us a little bit about
3: that? I did two series. uh, They were the brainchild of the um, former city editor Tom Keki who's now retired. Um, one of them was called Faces of the Storm. I launched that right after the storm. And these were like kind of short uh, vignettes, I almost want to call them, about just people and what they went through. So sometimes it might have been a neighbor who helped another neighbor out with their flooded home. Um, I remember doing one on rescue workers who helped rescue somebody's pet you know, who was still in the flooded home after they had evacuated. Um, and they were just people, you know, um, and it was a lot of different stories. Some of them, you know, who may have uh, lost possessions. Some, I think there was one or two about people who had lost loved ones, but we were also doing that separately as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my second series came a little bit after, um, because I was covering business, was really looking at um, all the businesses that were devastated. And we would made them more like a celebratory story and to, to let the people know when they got back in business. So this pretty much happened, I mean, it was going on from maybe three months after the storm until two years after, reporting that people had finally Um, found their way back into business.
2: Wow, yeah, it was uh, certainly a long road to recovery for many of these people and that continues today, unfortunately, and we'll be talking about that with some of our other guests. Um, But, you know, uh, one more thing before we go, I've talked about this on the podcast a little bit before, but, you know, reporting on things like deaths and natural disasters can can take a toll on reporters you know mentally and emotionally and i imagine it was even more difficult for some of our staffers like yourself who are native staten islanders having to cover this sort of devastation in your home borough so i was curious kind of what that was like was it difficult for you to process the fact that this sort of thing was was happening on staten island or were you able to kind of compartmentalize and and just focus in on the work
3: well as journalists we just kick in we just you know we just have to do it and and you didn't have time to think about it at the time. It uh, obviously it was gut wrenching every time we found out that someone else had perished. Um, I I think you're going to interview Mark Stein, but he can tell you about what one of the first deaths was a teenage girl, and you know it's it's somber. But the thing that you want to do is you want to be able to tell these the story. So and sometimes the story uh, involves talking, having hard conversations with family members. But in most cases, what we're trying to do is tell the story of this person and how unfortunate it is that, that you know, they lost their lives during a natural disaster. Um, and there were a lot of stories that were very, very, um, you know, emotional people. I, uh, two young, young children. At the time, I had a young daughter. It's like, you, you can't even imagine what these people were going through. So, yeah, there was definitely, um, a, a, you know, an emotional thing. But I guess as journalists, we feel that we're we're helping people by telling their stories.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tracy. It's always nice to chat with you, and I'm glad we were able to get you back on the pod.
3: Thank you, Eric.
2: Next, we'll be joined by former reporter turned social media specialist, Mark Stein, to discuss what it was like reporting out in the field after the storm. We're back with our second guest, Mark Stein. Uh, this is the first time that we're having you on the podcast, but I'm sure many of our listeners are already familiar with you from your work on our Facebook Lives with uh, Tom Robleski. So uh, even though this is your first appearance on the pod, I know that you know we have someone who's comfortable in front of a mic and a camera, right? Uh, sometimes
0: too comfortable. Yeah, we're not going to get any comments during this, right?
2: That's true. Yeah, <laughs> you usually have to respond in real time, in real so this time. will be a little a little bit easier, I'm sure. It's just you, so exactly. I don't think you'd be
0: trolling me much, right?
2: No, I didn't plan on it. Yeah. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, which I also asked Tracy, our first guest, is kind of just what it was like for you on the day of the storm. I'm always curious to hear from people who were there because, you know, although I am a native Staten Islander, I was upstate at college at the time when the storm hit. So I didn't really experience it firsthand in the way that other people did. So kind of just walk us through what was that day like for you? Were you at work? Were you
0: home? Were you out in the field? What what do you remember about the day of the storm? I'll have to pull you back really quick to the year before in the summer, I think. Mm -hmm. End of summer, Hurricane Irene was projected to really do some damage in the area specifically staten island and it turned out to be somewhat of a dud right so sandy comes around the next year and people are you know some people at least think well i don't need to evacuate they were wrong last time i'm not going to do it maybe my house got robbed or i was concerned about safety with sandy so that monday of the storm i'm out and about running at the supermarkets this and that i work for the shore section we published once a week but i had to put together like 10 11 12 stories And I figured, let me get some stuff now, even though this won't print for a few days after the storm, Mm -hmm. just to get a feel of how people prepared for it. Every supermarket was packed. I was talking to people in parking lots, getting a feel. And some people just had like M&Ms and chips and said, this is all I need for the storm. (laughs) Other people had massive shopping carts. I was in and out. I was in the office, out of the office. But in the beginning of that Monday, people were sending us photos. A gentleman who lives on the South Shore who eventually became Assemblyman Mike Riley was just um, a retired police officer who was sending us photos of what was going on in his neighborhood and hearing things of what was going on. So he was sending us stuff. So early in the day, we had a feeling like this is going to be a big, big problem for real. The day goes by, nighttime rolls around. I'm home that night, hanging out with my mom in my house and lights are out. listening to the radio and you just know things are going off across the city. The Belt Parkway is flooded. There's a massive fire in, in the Rockaways, the Kennedys area uh, that decimated dozens of homes or whatnot. There's transformers outside blowing. You're seeing blue flickers all throughout. They go to sleep, sleep for maybe three, four hours. <laughs> Wake up the next morning. And then it's like hit the ground running. Go to the newsroom. The two guys that worked the night before are still there. Wow. Dean Valsamini, who was the editor and John Anise, who was the reporter. He's now at the Daily News. They were working all night. There was no way they could have left, you know, because of all the traffic, all the damage that came in from the storm surge and whatnot. So it was really a combination going into it of being home in the office and out and about, and then all the, you know, the aftermath, which was horrifying the next day.
2: Right, yeah, and that's kind of what I wanted to get to next. I know that you were one of the reporters who were really out in the field during that immediate aftermath of the storm, and you witnessed that devastation firsthand. So can you kind of paint a picture for our listeners of that experience? What were some things that, that
0: really stood out to you when you were out there and, and kind of assessing some of the damages? It was a lot to grasp. I, um, I think back to the early start of COVID when the streets were totally bare. The Tuesday morning rolls around. I, step, I come into the newsroom for a few minutes just to see what's going on, me in a direction obviously i'm writing for shores but i know today without even need- needing to be told that i'm on breaking news like this is of this course. is the story this is what we do all hands on deck etc etc uh i find out from i think john who was working that hey we heard something hor- horrific happen on yetman avenue in tottenville which for those listening who might not be familiar with tottenville it's really really at the end of of the south shore off of highland boulevard like this person's home the family home the dress home was about 50 feet from the water. The beach was right there. If you walk beyond the woods, mm-hmm. there was the beach. They send me down there. It's maybe 8, 9 o'clock. The drive down, there's no one on the streets. It's the weirdest thing. I'm on the West Shore Expressway and it's just me. Really strange. Um, I get down there, pull over, and there's tons of people walking around. And you could see debris everywhere. There's maybe a fire truck, firemen. Everything's wet. Every, it's still windy out. There's overcast. It, it just feels like you know, not to, to for cliche, it feels like a horror movie, a thriller, some sort of yeah. dystopian disaster flick. And um, I'm asking about this girl and, and father or whatnot that are ale- apparently lost or missing or whatnot. And they lead me down the street. Just keep going down, keep going down. Really weird, like, you got to walk to the end to really see the, the the true wreckage. Like, it's bad enough you've seen garages wiped out and homes banged up and wooden in the streets and trash everywhere. But you get to the bottom of the street... People are either crying, they're just emotionless, really, really crazy stuff. And you get to the end, I get to the end of the street and on the left is just uh, maybe four or five brick steps of a house and there's like water shooting out of pipes. Wow. There was nothing left except for this, you know, stoop. Um, at that moment, I think there was still a search effort going on for the for the girl and her father. I think she was 13 or 14. Angela Dresh, I believe was her name, mm-hmm. What was her name. It it just hit you like a ton of bricks. It was as emotional a moment you could ever see. And that was just one facet. That was just the start. Because we would get calls, notices from funeral homes over the next few days about this person passed away, you know, officials, this person's gone, this person's missing, like a lot of the stuff coming through about that. And that's not even getting into the damages and the concern about homeowners and whatnot. But to paint the picture to to sum up the, the whole thing is, it truly was um, stunning of how something like this could actually happen that fast and without as much rain as they even expected. It was just the storm surge that that smashed everything up.
2: Yeah, and I know that you were actually uh, wrote the article about that, that young girl who, who passed away during the storm, too. And I, I spoke to Tracy about this earlier. Uh, You know our our job can be really hard in some senses uh, dealing with with death and devastation uh, Just on a regular basis and then when you see it in your backyard in the way that we saw it in in Sandy It can be very difficult So can you just tell me a little bit about what you know what what writing that story was like and and having to tell the tale of these people who have lost their lives by by
0: Speaking with their loved ones who are obviously obviously still grieving. I I don't even think I spoke I I just pulled up the story as we going along with this. I don't even I don't think I did speak to anyone I I think we just had word Mm -hmm. From people in the area, you know, I I knew a lot of people in the South Shore because I covered the South Shore on a regular basis. I had covered crime and tragedy in the past, but my primary job at that moment was just um, kind of community news, businesses, uh, transportation developments, environmental happenings, parks, and the like. And that really allowed me to tap into a community in ways that other reporters may have not really been tapped in because if you're covering a specific beat, you know, geographically, it might not. The connection may be a little. Weaker than whatever I had. But I was able to get a ton of information. I found out where this girl went to school. The neighbors were really friendly. You would think in a time like this, neighbors might not want to talk to you. Go away. This is horrifying. I don't want to be bothered. But I think to some degree they were almost, it was like cathartic, relieving. It it, it was necessary for them to talk about this person. A friend, you know, the school she went to I think was right up the street. So Yetman avenue, you have two intermediate school and a public school. Right up the block, she went there. You know, she was probably going to graduate soon, 13, 14 years old. People were a little chatty on the block, so we just kind of ran up what we had. I got back to the office. Uh, we wrote it up, and, and I think it was one of the first confirmed and identified deaths from Sandy, in the area, especially New York. It was surreal. It was a story you never want to write. You know, you, you had to do it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the people that actually spoke to us during that time, and it, it, it really was... Insane. One of the things we had to do or one of the things I thought about doing was to show the before and after. I was taking my own photos back then, uh, like we do now for the most part. But this mm-hmm. is before everyone had an iPhone. Right. So I took a photo of the foundation or whatever was remaining and I um, I measured it against the Google Maps image. Wow. Like a street maps image. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of combined it to make a composite. And it's, you know, Monday afternoon, that house is there. And a few hours later, it's just steps. I haven't been back to the area in a long time. I'd imagine there's nothing left. I think the last story I saw, um, maybe the city or the state bought the property, because it's probably a place where not many people would want to live after that, especially with any sort of storm surge or anything. Um, it, it, it was awful, it was awful. It was a story that that we wrote. It was the first of many that involved people passing away. Um, within a week or two, I was getting obituaries to write on weekends about, you know, the mother that passed away or the father that got stuck behind a door as the storm surge was coming in and he was unable to be rescued. Like, create, just horrifying um, examples of that. But writing that one was really was rough. It, it was not fun.
2: No. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very heavy stuff. And it, it, I know, you know, I've talked about this a lot with some of our other reporters, especially uh, our colleague Joseph Ostapiuk, who, who does breaking news and does such a a great job on lots of these stories where you have the tragic loss of a loved one and you have to go speak to the family members, right? And that's one of the most difficult things in reporting, at least it is for me. I know that talking to people after one of the most horrific, uh, you know, incidents of their lives is is hard, but you know, one thing that he always says is that it's so important uh, for a lot of those people, like you said, to be able to tell that story and, and just kind of get it out there. And so while it's difficult for the families, while it's difficult for us, it, it really does have so much value value to the people involved in it. So um, I commend you on, on kind of doing that that great work even Thanks. though it was it was very difficult to yeah. to kind of process at the time. Um, you know so, so moving on considering you know I wasn't at the paper at the time of the storm I'm, I'm curious just kind of in the in the days following what was the news gathering and, and story building process of this all like so when you were sent out were you you know given specific angles or assignments to look for or were you just kind of told to, to just go out there see what you get and come back and, and figure it out because it, you know depending on the situation
0: sometimes you know exactly what you're looking for sometimes they're like go figure it out so what, what was it really like for you? Well, I'll give you two quick examples in the days after like immediately after the storm the Tuesday Wednesday or not I think we had a story that must have five six seven bylines on it it's in you know the, the print archives we use um, and we just sort of had reporters stationed in different neighborhoods give us an update from this neighborhood have whatever photos you had lay it out there try to get any information you can about schools just the atmosphere what the cleanup's like what the damage is like what's this that and the other it was really hard to keep track of because there was Think of the shoreline of Staten Island. Yeah, of course. There's so, so many much. different neighborhoods. You know, you had a tanker wash up on the North Shore, and you had homes being just smashed out of, into oblivion in parts of Dorp Beach, Oakwood, Midland, Ocean Breeze, South Beach, Tottenville, Princess Bay. Uh, whether they were the smaller homes in Ocean Breeze or Midland Beach, or, you know, the big mansions on Nicolosi Drive down in, behind St. Joseph-by-the-Sea High School, there was a different feel, yet collectively everyone was getting, had their property smashed and loss of life, and and just extreme concern about what happens next with my home. Where do I live? What do I do? But on the other side, I did have a story about a month later. New Dorp High School was the site. This is maybe in maybe like end of November, so about a month later. Um, there was supposed to be a giant assembly for people affected by Sandy, property owners. Um, what questions are going to be answered? What sort of solutions will there be? Representatives from the city were there, the state, they had all sorts of you know, a resource gathering, cubicles set up, makeshift areas in New Dorp High School. And I had this giant assignment. Go there. You know, we want you to put together two stories, pretty much a and a of what's answered from officials, mm-hmm. and then try to get, you know, the general feel of it and whatnot. So I'm like, all right, simple enough. The editors had this plan. They sent me in. Did not go as expected.
2: We've seen that happen plenty Did of times. Did not go as
0: expected because, and I guess we should have seen it coming to a degree, um, there was, people had questions, but the answers weren't there yet. Yeah. So about 15 minutes or 20 minutes into this meeting, people are realizing it's like a packed auditorium where they had, I think, um, the aisleways had microphones at the end of them mm-hmm. so people could just come up. Yeah,
2: just come up and ask a question. At first
0: it was questions, and, and then it just became storytelling. Wow. So of people like, what am I going to do with this and that? Well, we're sorting it out. We're still going to get back to you. this and that. We have counselors here and yada, yada. And then it became, well, my house is gone, I'm missing this. The, and it just became like a, um, I don't know, what's the word I could use? Just like a gripe fest of sorts. Yeah, just sort yeah. of like releasing emotion mm-hmm. and releasing concerns. So the story went from, I remember making a phone call in the middle of it, and I'm sort of standing on the stage to the side. Yeah. With, um, I guess, a gentleman that's not with the Archdiocese, but he worked in a assemblyman's office years ago. Like, there was some political... Employees were mm-hmm. not staffers up there that I was able to to channel like to, to work with at least talk to for some insight and um, It was just weird seeing it from that point of view seeing the people on stage have no answers and Seeing the people in the crowd completely lost for answers So I call up the editors and I'm just like hey, we're not gonna get that story. This is what yeah. the deal is here And they're like alright come back and write what you have and it was just a story of um, we don't know yet yeah, a month later. Think about like think about going four weeks without an answer on your property. An yeah, answer on your on, house. Yeah, on your house. Where, where are you sleeping? What hotels? Um, what what? What's your work situation like? And you got to sit there. The stress from that. The stress from maybe surviving. You know, a, a chance of death from the storm. Right. Reaching out to you know, looking out for your kids, pets, uh, employment, whatever bills do I pay the bills? I just a lot of things were up in the air there, and that was a month later. And it, it would take a long time for people to figure that stuff out. So it really was a mix of like figure things out, and here we have a plan try and sort this out. And then even when you have the plan, we, it might not right, even right. might not even pan out how you think. And the last it. thing I'll throw in on top of this is there were a lot of rumors going around about you know tons of bodies being washed up on the beach, in New Dorp or whatnot. A lot mm-hmm. of hearsay. Um, there's never any photographic evidence of this. Uh, multiple people went on record saying that this is not the case. Mm-hmm. The fatality counts that we have are, according to them, you know, officials. This is accurate. There's not some, you know, massive unreported amount of deaths or mass graves in near schools. Or... So the rumor mill stuff was out there too, and addressing that was like another little facet too. And this is before social media was. I mean, it was big, but it wasn't. Like, yeah, could everyone. You, could in you it? imagine what that would be now? Right. And, and, and seeing all this content coming through. Well, the one thing I always. And like I, I wish I see this, but for at least historical, you know, documentation, I don't think there's a video of the storm surge that actually tore through Staten Island.
2: Yeah, it's difficult. And now uh, you, would have,
0: uh, you would have, you so know, a hundred of them.
2: You'd have people on Citizen live casting but, the storm from their window, or, or whatever. Or you would
0: at least have the live video before, if they're hit by the storm, lose their phone. Yeah. Um, I always wondered if people did have video and it was just washed away or smashed up by the phone. I don't know, but it, a lot of things were different. 10 years ago than they are now, for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And you know, one last thing that I wanted to touch on is that, you know, we've seen in the wake of disasters that they kind of have this tendency to galvanize a community and, and bring people together in a really meaningful way. You know, for example, we kind of saw that all across the country after 9-11. So, uh, I'm curious if Sandy had that that same kind of effect on the Staten Island community, where, you know, regardless of their differences of opinion on on politics or whatever issues it might be, that that people kind of banded together
0: in support of this common relief effort. I can't even think about all of the efforts that happened underway. You know, you had that 12-12-12 concert on a big scale for the area, where you had the massive artists like, I think, Billy Joel, The Who, The Rolling Stones, all these people were there. Performing for fundraising purposes, but at least locally. You know, the funny thing about working on Staten Island is you're covering this stuff, but this is also happening to people that you actually know. Yeah. You know, uh, a friend of mine had a, his, his family's from Midland Beach, born and raised there, and their house was heavily, heavily damaged. It wasn't like their foundation wasn't destroyed, but they had to pretty much gut the entire house inside and out mm-hmm. and rebuild from the inside. So as we're, that Saturday, a few days after the storm, a bunch of us are cleaning out his house. And Midland Avenue, the whole Midland Beach area looks like sort of a, like a, I don't wanna say a ground zero, but a destination for people to just come and do something to help someone out. Mm-hmm. So you had people giving out like chicken and rice, uh, water bottles, just handing it, It just happening. And you saw all these people coming in with, with like certain shirts on of, of organizations where they're from that aren't from here, just helping people out, throw garbage out, move things. It was uh, astonishing. It was really, you know, really inspiring to see uh, as people had no idea what was going on with their futures and whatnot. Like the work got done immediately. Uh, I told you before this, I'll tell you it again. As we we're cleaning up, I think we were like, we didn't have as much um, equipment as we wanted. We didn't have gloves, mm-hmm. we were missing gloves. So I wrote something on Facebook, hey, if anyone's in the Midland Beach area, if you could just stop by and maybe throw us an extra pair of gloves. Someone I had known, was in the area helping another person clean up wow came over and gave us gloves and uh it was just one example of many of people doing the right thing in the in the aftermath and it really was you know uplifting to see that and and honestly it's expected right that when crap goes wrong when when horrible when a horrible situation happens you know people stand Island usually do respond um but it was a wild time we had an election like the, the presidential election was a week later right right um, you know, you're, you're heading towards Thanksgiving. Halloween was "quote unquote" canceled. Um, there was a ton. Imagine a table like this, just covered in Halloween candy, because the <laughs> office was full of Halloween candy. Oh yeah, yeah. So there was food everywhere, and and you know, just just working with everyone was was so um, you know uplifting as well. Being in this field, being in this position to see and give answers when possible to um, during a crisis. It was the only place that had power as well for me, so I, I would just hang in the office even if I didn't have much work to do right. at the end of shifts. Like two hours later, I'd still be sitting in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say that weekend afterwards was, uh, I'll never forget the Friday night I went out. My buddy who had his house pretty much demolished came out. We we, we had like a kind of a good time. I'll put yeah, this way. Yeah. The Knicks just started their season. They beat the Miami Heat that night. Right, right. Every bar was packed. It was one of those like, mm-hmm. we need to blow off some steam exactly. nights. And yeah. Uh, You know, my longtime colleague and Facebook Live partner, Tom Robleski, I'll never forget what he said to someone in the days following. I I overheard him saying it. He said, it just seems like a lot of people are hugging now. There there was a strong emotional response to it. There was a strong charitable response to it. Uh, The essence of community, whatever you want to describe it, it was there. and, And there's really nothing, even COVID doesn't, can't relate to it because it happened so fast, like a giant spike and then it just dropped. And then you just had this aftermath. So the the reaction to it was was um, amazing. But the moment was horrifying. The reaction was incredible. And um, you no, know, I was proud to be there to help out. Yeah, and it's uh, it's always great to
2: to kind of see a community come together like that. And it's just a shame that we only seem to to see it in these instances following a disaster. But Tell you know, thank man. you, thank you so much for joining me today, well, thank Mark. You, man. It's been a pleasure having you on, and uh, hopefully we can find a way to get you back on again soon. Please let me know. Thanks. Appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Next, we'll be joined by Staten Island Advance public interest and advocacy reporter Paul Leota to discuss his experiences with the storm that devastated the neighborhood his family has called home for over a century. We'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey, a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. You've become uh, quite the regular on the podcast, and I appreciate you coming back on to talk about a story that you have a very close personal connection to. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you having me yeah so um the first thing that i've been asking all of our guests is kind of just what their experience was like during the night of the storm i know that like myself you were away at college at the time so you weren't actually here in the borough so what was that like for you being away from your family who you know happens to live in one of the neighborhoods that was hardest hit by the storm i'm from born raised uh will probably
4: die in midland beach um i was away at college at the university of Scranton in pennsylvania and I mean, there we didn't really get a lot of anything. It just got really windy, wasn't a lot of rain. I mean, it's in the middle of Pennsylvania, so it's not like we're gonna get any kind of, you no know, coastal flooding or anything like that. But uh, I was in contact with everybody at home. Um, you know, Earlier in the day, uh, my mom and I have always kind of, you know, laughed at these types of situations, which usually we're right, but this time we weren't. Uh, and. You know my dad was kind of extremely worried about the situation and he was correct but um so I'm in contact with everybody at home you know sort of throughout the night and I'm texting and like you know I'm on social media seeing like old friends and like you start to notice I guess around seven o'clock eight o'clock it was really right around high tide uh, here locally that things are getting bad and um, I remember at one point uh, buddy texted me that the church steps at St. Margaret Mary's in Midland Beach were underwater. Now that's like, I would say 15 feet up. So I was just like, at that point, I knew that something was, you know, extremely wrong. And I eventually, you know, lost contact with my parents. Uh, So I was kind of scrambling, uh, you know, through any kind of means of contact I could think of. I know you mentioned earlier that our colleague Tracy was sort of taking phone calls for people, you know, uh, looking for information and I was I was one of those people and it was uh, it was just like a really desperate, really, you know trying night.
2: Yeah, it's got to be really scary. I couldn't imagine, you know, like I said, I was away at college as well. But uh, my family is located more centrally in the borough. We're over in westerly. We're not on the coast like you are. So we saw, you know, some some heavy winds and, and some rainfall. But the storm surge, as we know, was really the, the biggest issue with Sandy. And so uh, I wasn't clearly affected in the same way that you are. And it must have been kind of just so difficult not knowing and just the, the kind of anxiety of, of waiting to, to hear from them. And and so one thing that you mentioned um, in a piece for our recent climate series, Staten Island 2100, uh, is that your family has been living in Midland Beach for multiple generations, spanning over 100 years, right? And so you spoke with your grandfather on the Night of Sandy uh, about previous storms that had kind of ravaged the neighborhood throughout the years. So I was wondering if you can share a little bit about that conversation with us and, and what some of your biggest takeaways were from it. Despite
4: my Italian last name, uh, my mother's family is Irish uh when they got here from ireland they settled in midtown manhattan uh kipps bay ish area um but you know as they lived here you know everybody always wanted to get out of the city and midland beach was a beach community you know similar to you know how parts of long island jersey shore are now uh, resorts that sort of thing so you know i mean they found uh It's just a random parcel of land. I think somebody that she knew who worked for the city, my my grandfather's mother, uh, you know, put her on to this piece of property and they bought it. And my grandfather had been, uh, my great grandfather had been a carpenter in Ireland, so he, you know, built the houses, that sort of thing. And yeah, I mean, to one extent or another, uh, my grandfather was born in 1924 Uh, To one extent or another we have been there mostly as a summer home, but it's been you know the primary residence for like my immediate family for my entire life, you know that night uh, I'm kind of freaking out like I said and I think like oh well my grandfather's in Queens because he again he would summer in Staten Island He wouldn't live there year-round But so I get him on the phone Uh, he lived in an apartment building in Woodside uh, that was, you know, uh, I think it's six stories off the ground, so I knew he was fine, um, thankfully. But, you know, I had him on the phone, and he he was always, he was never, uh, you know, as he aged, he never got uh, his, you know, mental acuity was always top-notch, I'd say. And, but he just was not, for whatever reason, whether he was trying to, like, take my mind off it or what it was, he was not interested in talking about like, the t- situation at hand. Mm-hmm. he was. But he starts going into it. like, yeah, I remember in the 30s and in the 50s, we had storms similar to this. And I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like, I need assistance right now. I don't need a history lesson. But in retrospect, I think he was imparting some, like, level of wisdom on me that, because, I mean, that was always his thing, uh, that, you know, we've gotten through this before. Everything's going to be all right um, in his own way of doing it. Um, but, yeah, so... we started working on the climate series i was like you know what let's finally look into this joe astapiuk um said uh let's you know go down to the library and uh saint george library and you know take a look at what was going on back then so but i mean we found you know dozens of news clippings sort of not every year but maybe once every five years there's these major storms on like what we call the east shore now and it's always around october november and You know, I mean, it's similar kinds of devastation that we saw during Sandy. I mean, Sandy, undoubtedly, I think is number one. But, um, you know, it's cars floating along. It's, It's, you know, people's houses getting swept away. It's something that has been a reality in that area for a very long time.
2: Yeah, I know it's something that, uh, you know, we deal with all the time in, in areas like that, right? You're you're just going to be kind of predisposed to those types of inclement weather events when you're living in those types of areas, just like people who are living in Florida are going to be hit by more of these hurricanes on a yearly basis. So. Um, I just thought it was so cool and so interesting. If uh, any of our listeners want to go back and read those articles to see some of the old clippings and just kind of because it felt very new and very like, oh my God, how could this happen here? We've never seen this before. But, you know, when you do go back, we've had similar experiences, although, like you said, not necessarily to the level of, of kind of what we saw with Sandy. So, another thing that I'm curious about is just kind of, you know, what it was like when you returned home for the first time after the storm and, and saw the damage that it had done to your neighborhood. What do you remember kind of seeing and feeling? during your first trip back a whole lot to be honest Uh, so I took the
4: bus home from Scranton like a Mart's you know uh, trails bus kind of thing and I got off at uh, Port Authority in Manhattan I eventually get home I take the ferry Uh, actually I think I might have treated myself to an express bus ride oh wow if I remember correctly but uh, I got off and one of the things that sticks out for some reason is that on my block uh, So we live on Hunter Avenue, so it was Hunter and Highland. Councilwoman Debbie Rose is there. I just remember seeing her and being like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. Um, But she didn't represent the district, so I think it just kind of stuck in my head because it spoke to what a uh, sort of universal response Mm -hmm. it was. But so first I went to my house, uh, which is, you know, it's a fairly big piece of property but um, everything in the backyard was sort of just strewn about. Uh, I remember seeing like a dead fish in the alleyway and just being like, oh, that's different. Um, And then I looked, peeked in the house because I mean, once I looked in, it was just like, oh, we don't need to go any further than this. It was sort of that everything was just clearly, you know, a total loss. And uh, it just wasn't going to, you know, most things weren't going to be salvageable in the house but from there i went to a friend's house and we were all kind of commiserating you know about what was going on and we chopped it up for a while but then eventually i left because my parents were staying at my godmother's house in oakwood beach i guess but they didn't they just missed it like they just got basement flooding thankfully um so they had just missed it but um yeah, I mean, this is, like I was talking about earlier, these are people that I was in contact with, and I, they were eventually who got in contact with me. i were like, oh, we found your parents. They were staying at, uh, they got to the Petridi's evacuation zone. But then, like I was saying, they were staying at my godmother's. And um, I walked to Oakwood Beach from Midland Beach, and I my timing was off because the sun was starting to go down and all the power was still out. So I'm starting to see, like, in Oakwood, in particular, there were like a lot of those "you loot, we shoot" type signs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember one, in, like I remember I could take you to the house where it was. Which, like, you know, I mean, it's a traumatic situation, so I kind of get people's reactions to that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was quite an ordeal seeing like all the destruction, like cars strewn about, sand everywhere. Everything just seemed so sandy because like the ocean had literally come in, right, and. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh it was a lot to take in when when I got back first. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. And that was one thing that we spoke with Tracy about, just kind of the the difference in seeing this type of devastation in your hometown and seeing it in your neighborhood and how that's a little different. And it, it hits, obviously, much harder than it does when you obviously see these sorts of things on the news or we see coverage of past storms that have affected other parts of the country. So I imagine that must have been a, incredibly difficult for you. And, you know, just one last thing before we go, um, given that your family has been in Midland Beach for so long and, you know, you've mentioned in your article that you you kind of want to stay there as long as possible. Uh, I'm curious just kind of how optimistic you are about the future of the East Shore as uh, some of the more bleak climate projections that our colleague Joe has written about kind of show that parts of it could become uninhabitable in the coming decades depending on on climate change. It is definitely a
4: concern. Uh, I think that, I mean, just sort of that we're at the 10 year, yesterday I was on this like harbor tour with all different people from like the New York metro area. And I mean, it was a lot of the same stuff that like we're in the same position we were 10 years ago, more or less, which uh, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think governments are starting to understand that a lot of these areas are gonna be losses. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm gonna stick with it as long as possible, I guess, which might not be the most responsible decision, but I can allow to be responsible sometimes. <laughs> um, I have a pension for it, but, um, no i mean you know we have a lot of theoretically a lot of projects in the works uh you know the blue belts that the city's developed those have really helped like, mitigate flood risk in my area which has been you know great uh in theory we have the seawall but i'm currently working on another story about how that's a problem again right. uh but you know i mean i think it's sort of a wait and see approach you know we've had really bad climate projections for 40, 50 years now. And I mean, I always think back to the Al Gore uh, inconvenient truth thing. I mean, we were supposed to be underwater by now and we're not. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not like this anti-science guy, but it's just like, I don't know. I I think it's hard to predict, predict the future and we're gonna see where we're gonna go.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Paul. I appreciate it as always. And I wish you the best of luck in covering the upcoming elections. Yay. <laughs> next up, we'll be joined by our fourth and final guest, climate reporter Joseph Ostapiu, to discuss the borough's ongoing resiliency efforts and whether Staten Island is better equipped to handle the next major storm. Thanks for joining me today, Joe. You know, given your role as the climate reporter here, I wanted to have you on to kind of wrap up our podcast on Hurricane Sandy, or as some would say, Superstorm Sandy, but I actually we've kind of wanted to start there. So what's the whole deal with the hurricane versus Superstorm thing? Why do different people kind of use different terms to describe this storm? Mm-hmm. That's actually a
1: really good question, Eric. Ah. Throughout my reporting over the years, I've had people correct me saying it was never a hurricane; it was a superstorm. Uh, that's not not the case. There is actually no like classification of what a superstorm is. Storms go from tropical depressions to tropical cyclones to categories one, two, three, four, five, and you know, um, obviously five being the most catastrophic and tropical depressions being the least. Um, it was sort of an unofficial designation given to the storm. I think that's something important to to, to note. It, it, it's not officially a superstorm, mm-hmm. but that's just what it was called including in, in newsrooms yeah, you know, yeah. uh, throughout New York. Basically, the storm started, like a lot of storms do, in the lower part of the Atlantic, gathering up some warm water, and then it started to go north. And then the the real le- the, the, the left turn that it took um, towards New York, uh, it sort of collided with cooler air, mm-hmm. and it sort of magnified its, its intensity, and that's how it sort of got the
2: Superstorm moniker. Interesting. I think people just like alliteration. That's, yeah, it's that's it's really fantastic. All it it, it is. is It is great. It <laughs> just makes for a, for a better headline in some <laughs> senses, I think. Um, but yeah, so that makes sense. But um, before we dig into some of the resiliency stuff, which is why I kind of wanted to have you on, uh, I wanted to ask you the same question that I asked everyone else, which is kind of just, what do you remember about the night of the storm? Where were you? What was it like to experience? Um, we were both in high school. Uh, at
1: the, at I was the time. actually my freshman year of college, so I wasn't even here. Oh, in I, the I was in, I think I was, I think it was my yeah, was senior def, year year of high, high school. school yeah um i was i was at home during the storm i remember i lived in willowbrook in the willowbrook area at the time it's far from the coast so i wasn't seeing you know flooding impacts but i i do remember looking out the the front window of my of my living room and seeing the the trees which i were seeing bend in ways i'd never seen bend <laughs> before and then obviously the aftermath of it i remember riding my bike around my neighborhood for a little bit and just seeing the complete devastation. And then I later uh, volunteered at New Dorp High School, handing out some um, supplies and stuff and going around the neighborhood. And those images, I think, are those are ones that will definitely stick with me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so you've done some really great reporting as part of a special series that we released called Staten Island 2100, which talked about how the borough could be impacted by climate change in the coming decades. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that from a Hurricane Sandy perspective. And so obviously we saw how devastating Sandy was, but some of the stuff you reported on makes it sound like future storms could be even worse if current trends continue. So can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so we definitely covered that a bit in the Staten Island 2100 series, talking more generally about climate and how it affects extreme weather. We actually had a more recent piece come out where I spoke to a a couple experts who spoke to me about Sandy specifically, what scientists know about that and how climate change affected that storm. Obviously we had extreme storm surge and rising seas, things along those lines affect that. Um, the process of climate change affecting storms is, is pretty interesting. Basically in simplistic terms, a warmer atmosphere as the earth warms, uh, retains more moisture. So if, you, if you're thinking about you know the atmosphere and how much water it can hold, the warmer it is, the more moisture. And then storms like Sandy or, or storms like we saw last year with Ida come through and release that moisture. So basically releasing more precipitation, more rainfall than would normally have happened. Uh, We're seeing around 10%, 15%, 5% more rainfall than usual in some storms. And scientists are now able to um, figure that out pretty quickly. They run models and projections and computers that are able to do that. Um, And in the same way, as I mentioned, rising tides also affect storms. So if a storm like Sandy comes through and sends um, storm surge, into the coastline, obviously having higher tides than normal, even if it's only six inches, even if it's eight inches. And we could be seeing that, you know, surpass a foot by the end of, you know, the the century and pass three feet, four feet, five feet, depending on how how um how much more warming we see. So that that greatly affects how much farther storm surge goes inland. And then therefore how much devastation that can happen and how many lives we can lose.
2: You know, now that we know what some of the issues kind of are, what, what is the government doing at the at the city, the state, and the federal levels in terms of resiliency efforts to try to mitigate some of these concerns moving forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, but there needs to be more still. I think that's what the general consensus I have among experts I speak to, and, and, and even even officials. Um, our colleague Giovanni Alves, she actually did a strong job um, sort of running through these projects recently in some of our Sandy coverage. Um, so, so some of those projects aren't even around anymore. I'm thinking about build it back. Um, we also had buyouts of flood-prone areas, which experts tell me are very important. May even need to sort of pick up again as we see new areas that may be at risk, especially as as, as tides rise, as, as I mentioned. Um, we have the living breakwaters project, which is an interesting project, which basically serves as a buffer. There's um, pieces of. Uh, Infrastructure underwater that'll basically break up waves and beach erosion. and that finally went underway I believe in September and then obviously the expansion of our blue belt system Which is you know extremely effective and pretty widely praised and then the east shore seawall. That's probably the one that's yeah That's uh, the uh, one we've
2: been waiting for.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's probably the most important project But it's also been the project most marred with delays our colleague polio has been been following that um, It's an extremely important project um, but it's also one that sort of showcases the difficulties in getting these things done. Sandy was 10 years ago now, and we're still talking about a project that, um, that's considered extremely important for our coastline, and yet it's still not even close to. to to complete it so
2: yeah i mean parts of it haven't even really been started there's been a i mean we've we've talked about that on previous podcasts so if people do want to go back and listen they can learn a little bit more about that um but you know moving on one thing that i found kind of interesting in your reporting and uh, in the discussions that you've had with these experts uh, about the city's alert system and trying to make sure that people are evacuated from their homes before these types of major storms hit so Unfortunately, as we've discussed, Hurricane Sandy showed us just how important evacuating is, considering all of the Staten Islanders who lost their lives during the storm. Can you tell us just a little bit about the challenges that the city has had in, in alerting and evacuating residents? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll start with this. I mean, storm communication is extremely difficult, um, there's a lot of moving parts, there's changing forecasts. Sandy's a perfect example. Very, very difficult storm to forecast. Took a sort of unexpected turn when some models were projecting to go out to sea and be harmless, and we wouldn't be sitting here talking talking about the storm if that was the case. Um, and then, of course, you have a massive amount of people, and then you have to have you have to assess things like risk management, how at risk are certain people how bad are things gonna be? And then you have to do it in a timely fashion. Those are all very, very hard things that the city has to come to grapple with. Um, translating that risk is difficult, but the city could definitely be doing a better job. That's that's for sure. Um, we've seen more recently after Ida came through, Mayor de Blasio, former Mayor de Blasio, called for planning for the worst case scenario in every scenario. Almost immediately experts who I spoke to disagreed with that, with that plan. Mm-hmm. Basically what de Blasio was insinuating was that when we have a storm, if we see a possible worst case scenario, let's just say that's gonna be it and let's evacuate people if if the worst case scenario came true. The issue with that is people become fatigued. Mm-hmm. Um, people will see an alert and if something doesn't pan out, then you end up not listening to the next one that may have to pan out. Um, and as a result, that could leave people ignoring a very, very important notifications that could save their lives. Um, and then Eric Adams also has had his challenges in recent storms. Some people in, in storms, not necessarily on Staten Island, but in some other areas of the city, said that they didn't feel any more prepared you know, after Ida, which was another one of those wake-up-call storms, just like Sandy was 10 years ago. And they felt like they weren't much more prepared than they were a year ago. So there's definitely a lot more that needs to be done. The city relies heavily on services like Notify NYC, services that don't include everybody. that requires people to subscribe mm-hmm. and... Um, isn't always very geographically based people a lot of experts i spoke to had issues with that in other words sending a an alert out to all of you know manhattan or all of lower manhattan even isn't really that effective when Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people there and there could be different uh, levels of risk so there's a lot more that needs to be done and part of it is sort of updating our technology and how we handle that
2: yeah, for sure. And I think that the um, the over-alerting aspect of it was a- interesting to me because it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf, mm-hmm. right? The mayor who cried hurricane here. <laughs> it's like, you got to get out of your homes and then there's no rain. And then you're like, oh, well, why do I have to listen to these? If he's going to say it every time, it's going to rain a little bit. I'm not going to evacuate every time. So then mm. you end up staying there, but you don't know when a real serious one is going to hit like this, like you said with Sandy were some projections that didn't realize that it was going to be as severe as it was and so it, it definitely is uh, challenging uh, for the city and something mm-hmm. that um they need to improve on but uh we'll, we'll see you know what they can do to kind of do that but, yeah we'll definitely
1: keep an eye on that for sure
2: yeah and so before we go just Kind of overall here would would you say that staten island is better prepared now to handle a major storm than it was when sandy hit and and kind of what more needs to be done in that regard from your conversations with some of the experts
1: Mm -hmm. i mean that's a complex question i mean uh, the overall broad answer i think is i think so (laughs) um i mean sandy changed everything really i mean it it changed not only things for new york but i mean just in general of what the, the potential of these storms could be um and it sparked obviously all those projects that we mentioned that would have been necessary anyway, I think, but sometimes, I mean, just the way things are, you need, uh, unfortunately, a major event to happen to make people realize, Hey, mm-hmm. we have to improve our resiliency. Um, still uh, while I think we're better protected, you also have to keep in mind that climate change currently isn't improving in any way. Um, the earth is still expected to get warmer. Um, how much warmer it gets will directly correlate to how much worse some of these impacts are. Um, so that's, that's obviously something that's, that's, that, that's worrying. So it's gonna, it means that we're gonna be facing more extreme storms and then more often, which is another issue as well. So it, even if a storm doesn't reach the level of Sandy, having two or three of those storms in a year would obviously it's, to a single area would be an issue. Um, that's part of the equation has to be considered a whole wide range of things can be done. Um, we could talk about expanding green infrastructure, which is something a lot of people have been talking about which is something that happens more immediately. I mean, you hear things like storm sewers expanding and stuff like that, that stuff takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Time that, you know, it, time that we may not really have in a lot of ways, you know, decades to to really expand our hard infrastructure is gonna be hard to do if we don't have other measures like expanding blue belts using green infrastructure making sure that we retain areas that are natural areas that absorb um, water not building in areas that that are gonna that are gonna flood which is still a problem i mean it's 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 still an issue that we're we're facing so there are things that we can do that wouldn't really shoot ourselves in the foot like i mentioned about development and then also not swallowing up natural areas that that are pretty good at um, already at at, at retaining water Um, and then also I mean, it's a difficult process but we see the importance of being able to collaborate collaborate across agencies i mean that's really what marred the east shore seawall i mean so many things in that project slow, slowed it down but part of it was that you had federal and then local officials and things things just moved very slowly we know how that goes yes yeah. and we, we we have to i think in general as a city, as a country, as well, be a lot better at, at sort of streamlining those things and making them happen in a more uh, effective manner that can actually get things done. Because you know, just saying we're making an East Shore seawall doesn't you know doesn't actually put the seawall in right, place. Right.
2: Ten years later.
1: Yeah, we have to actually have it in place. We have to have the living breakwaters projects you know happen sooner than it did. I mean, j- just just starting in September is is really unacceptable in a lot of ways. So, yeah, that's So, so the answer is. Where we're getting there but still so 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 much more needs to be done um, in order to make sure that we're protected at, at a level that's i think acceptable
2: yeah absolutely well thank you so much for joining me today joe it's always great to have you on and i'll talk to you again soon yep thanks for having me on thank you for listening to the stat now advances from the scene if you like what you've heard please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit silive.com for the latest on all these stories and more thank you for supporting local journalism